on LA's west side as the Committee for Racial Injustice met in Santa Monica. As KCAL 9's Jeff DeWin shows us, there was a major police presence as officers braced for trouble. The city of Santa Monica brought in dozens of police officers because they didn't want to take any chances during the monthly meeting for the Committee for Racial Justice. The city manager says some agitators showed up to spew racist and anti-Semitic comments. That led to concerns more disruptors would show up this time around. This is a KCAL 9 news clip from a Committee for Racial Justice meeting in Santa Monica in the summer of 2017. It was just one of three meetings that summer that were crashed by white supremacists, and it was shocking to me. Nazis in Santa Monica? But if you know anything about LA history, if you scratch just below the surface, this was just another chapter in a long story of racial conflict around how we live together in this city. The white supremacists objected to sharing the same space as black and brown bodies, to living in the same neighborhoods, to accepting and negotiating difference. But they were repulsed by a community that felt a deep connection to Santa Monica, to that land and that city, and felt it should be kept free from hate. I need to make, my, make sure that my loved ones feel safe. I need to make sure that my loved ones feel that they can participate in the democratic process. Welcome to Paved Paradise, a podcast about the urban history of Los Angeles. I'm your host, Sue Bell Yank. This season, I will explore how policies and cultural values around housing and land use have shaped this city and have led to our current affordability and homelessness crisis. Property values are skyrocketing. More areas of the city are becoming unaffordable to low-income people, and 58,000 people are homeless in LA County. 58,000. Now, I come from a pretty privileged background, but this crisis is on the tip of everyone's tongue. We always seem to end up talking about it, because this is our home, and we love it, and we want it to remain a vibrant place for everyone. I'm raising three girls in this city, and I'm worried that they will never be able to find an affordable place to live, not at the rate we're going. So, I feel some urgency around this topic. How did we get here? And what are we going to do about it? In this first episode, I'm going to talk about LA's history of systematically oppressing people based on race by excluding them from what should be a basic human right, affordable housing. Examining legal policies like racial covenants and redlining, as well as less legal but widely condoned tactics of intimidation and discrimination, will help us understand how we got to where we are today and what we need to do for the future. Right out of high school, they knew they wanted to come here from Arkansas. They wanted to come to California for the opportunities and probably the, my godmother says my mom wanted to come for the guys, uh, mm. <laughs> the military and so forth, mm-hmm. and which my father was in the military. Mm-hmm. And so they came to California because um, my godmother got a job at Douglas Aircraft. That's Robbie Jones. She runs Black History Tours in Santa Monica, where her family has lived for decades. I talked to her together with longtime Santa Monica resident Harriet McCauley for a first-hand account of how people are affected by the kinds of racial policies I'm going to talk about. I was born and raised in Santa Monica, California. Went to all the schools here, straight through Santa Monica College, and then uh, went to Cal State Northridge. 
But in between those times, I also joined the military during the Vietnam War, some of Vietnam vets, uh, U.S. Marine Corps. We thought all other African-American people knew that there were black people here in Santa Monica, and that's not the case. When I would meet friends from Los Angeles and they asked me where I live, I said in Santa Monica, and they go, how long have you guys been there? I said, I've been here over 100 years. Across from Santa Monica High School on Pico, there's a gray building, uh, 624. Right, right. Um, that is where our doctor, our dentist, everybody, everybody was professional. Was that was the professional building? I didn't know that they were there because they could not have an office on Wilshire. It wasn't about oh look what they're doing to us. It was it was like okay, then I'm going to go do this here. That's why I told right. you I was never never in my mind I couldn't do something. I'm going to go. Yeah, you make okay, it I can't work. do it this way. I'm going to find another way you to make do it, it work. Robbie then tells me a story about a former neighbor and friend of hers, Miss Velma Latimer Johnson, whose house was once a stop on her Black History tour bus. Before she passed away several years ago, Robbie talks about how Miss Velma would dress to the nines and come onto the tour bus, chatting up all the delighted passengers and telling her story. She came here uh, from Texas to see after her father, who was a veteran, who was in the hospital. She said she only had like $47. She, you know, ended up having to stay a little longer because her father wasn't doing very well. Um, And she was, you know, renting rooms, trying to figure out, you know, what she was going to do. She met a Jewish man and he was saying, why don't you stop renting rooms and, you know, purchase some property? And she thought, you know, that was really funny. Mm-hmm. Me, I'm black, I'm a female, I don't have a lot of money, I'm going to do that. And he told her that he would help her. But she didn't do it right away because she said she was fearful and just kind of unstable. She wasn't sure. But eventually he continued to talk to her and got her, I guess, within the next year or so to decide she wanted to purchase this property, um, which is in the neighborhood, but a very nice area Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, on 18th and um, Michigan. He actually went to the bank and got the loan and everything for her. And she would pay through him for the, the mortgage of the property. And until, you know, it was she was able to be able to go into the bank and pay her own mortgage. But he did that for her so she could be able to have this place and eventually end up having her children, raising her daughters, whom I went to school with. Mm -hmm. Because Miss Velma was African-American, she was restricted from buying property in many places through legal restrictive language placed in property deeds. And even though folks like Miss Velma and the community in Santa Monica showed extraordinary creativity and resilience, this oppression was enforced in other ways. When the people that she worked for on Wilshire and Santa found out that she owned property, they fired her. Mm-hmm. But because of the network of African Americans here, she immediately found a better job mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, they were still uh, lower class jobs, but it was enough to help her to continue to pay the mortgage on the property. You know, much of the wealth of the middle class, or the working class particularly, white working class, is their house. And so if you exclude people from that wealth, intergenerationally, you actually limit the possibility 
that non-whites will be as wealthy as whites. That's David Sloan, a professor in urban planning and spatial analysis at the University of Southern California. This is all wrapped up in this very simple, this insidious act, uh, institutional act of, okay, you're going to be better off and you're not. That's a terrible thing for an American democracy. Racial covenants begin in the latter part of the 19th century. A racial covenant is a clause put in a house's property deed that restricts the sale of the property to any categories of people named in the clause. Racial covenants could be added to the property deeds of individual houses or to entire planned communities. LA was not the only city to have racial covenants. These existed throughout the entire United States. One of the reasons that they began was that cities began to be more racially diverse. So depending on where you are in the country, there are two or three different things happening. The first is that in the eastern half of the, of the country, in Chicago, Cleveland, etc., New York, New Jersey, you have African-Americans leaving the southern rural regions. In the West Coast, you have two or three different things happening. Uh, first of all, you have African-Americans moving, particularly from Louisiana, Texas. You also have Latinos, after a period of suppression and uh, expulsion, they're really coming back. And then, of course, you have Asians, first uh, the Chinese and then the Japanese. This diversity creates a circumstance where white people begin to worry about what their neighborhood's going to be like, uh, what the house value is going to happen, uh, who are they going to have as people around them. We begin to get covenants put in to try and ensure that places stay homogenous. The migrations of people of different races to cities across the United States exacerbated the anxiety of white people, and they often used covenants as a ways to keep neighborhoods homogenous. In Los Angeles, the people most often restricted from buying property were those of African, Mexican, and Japanese or Chinese descent. My family owned property, the property that I grew up in on 20th Street. My family came from Arkansas. My grandmother came from Arkansas. And my, um, her son, her oldest son, was deputy sheriff of Los Angeles County, one of the first black. And so he uh, helped purchase that property for the family, and that's where we were for mm -hmm. all of my years of going all the way through high school. They threatened my grandfather's life because he had property and they wanted to run either the railroad through it in Arkansas. And his brother is a CME minister, just like an African AME minister. They would go and open up churches all over the country. So from Arkansas, he went straight to Washington and he said to my grandfather, come out here because you'll like this area because that's where he opened up the church. So that's where they were, wherever the church opened up. What happens is complicated by lots of different realities. The first is that there is no national law. So it's not like Japanese internment. It's not like uh, the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s. Most of the restrictions that are placed on housing and thus on people occur incrementally over time, either by individual house 
individual subdivision, or by planned communities. Even if you worked at Douglas Aircraft and you became uh, executive, or you still weren't allowed to live in that area. You could work there, mm-hmm. but you 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 had to drive to Inglewood area, Watts, wherever. But they realized as they started doing you know mass production, they needed you know some more supervisors. So they started getting the African American executive in. And they needed somewhere for them to stay. and But they could not live across uh, ocean on the Ocean Park area. The covenants got so ridiculous at a certain point that they went far beyond race. Jewish Americans were often excluded along with other racial, racial groups. At some points, the covenants get to be uh, pretty ridiculous. I think it's Bel Air. I could be wrong. You know, they didn't want actors. I mean, the, the, the exclusion, you know, this idea of homogeneity really becomes a powerful idea mm. about race, class, and and sort of who we want around us. So any sort of bad elements yes, that you so could identify. That you could identify need to be kept out. In 1945, an African-American family called Shelley purchased a house in St. Louis, Missouri that had a restrictive covenant on it since 1911, and they were sued by a white neighbor who lived 10 blocks away. The Supreme Court eventually found that restrictive racially-based covenants are not on their face invalid under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, but they could not be enforced judicially by the state. This was a step forward. But such covenants were not made completely illegal until the Fair Housing Act, which was part of the Civil Rights Act of 1968. With the Supreme Court decision in 1948, you really, it now becomes illegal to enforce them. So now we move to extra legal efforts. Real estate agents won't show houses to non-whites. The community will uh, use some sort of subtle or overt effort to try and tell people, get the hell out of our neighborhood. And we know that in places like Chicago, and I'm sure this happened in in Los Angeles, I just don't know a specific example, because there were neighbors that actually took violent action to try, you know, marches or sent letters or posted nasty things on people's doors. And we know that in a surprising number of cases, this succeeded. And that homogeneity continued pretty well unbreached through much of the 50s and actually grew. According to a fantastic KCET article by Josh Sides, in the decade following the Shelley decision, whites across L.A. County bombed at least six black homes, burned four more to the ground, and intimidated countless other African-American homebuyers with death threats, cross burnings, and KKK graffiti. The USC Digital Archives and the LA Public Library has chilling images of white mobs protesting the sale of homes to black families. In Lamert Park, which started as a planned white community with blanket racially restrictive covenants, new homeowners Mr. and Mrs. Charles Williams returned from an evening out to find the interior of their entire house smeared with used motor oil. According to this article, creative litigation also played a part in this intimidation, including white homeowners suing other whites in their neighborhoods for violating these covenants. A group of 40 white homeowners filed suit against another white homeowner who sold his home on 6th Avenue to a black couple, Mr. and Mrs. Preston Wilson. 
The group sued well-known sports writer Oscar Reichow for $185,000, the estimated amount by which their property depreciated as a result of the Wilsons' arrival. In 1953 decision called Barrows versus Jackson, the Supreme Court made these kind of suits illegal. African Americans are suburbanizing along with whites, but in some sense the direction of African American suburbanization is very clear. Right? They're actually moving to mostly black suburbs. Most other places are holding out quite strenuously, even into the early 50s, they'll put covenants in the deeds, even though they're unconstitutional, or they'll send very clear messages through their advertising, you know, we're going to sell to whites only. All of that keeps going until the middle of the 60s when we go through another sort of round of policy discussions. Uh, a really, really sad one in California when we pass, the state legislature passes the Rumford Act in 19, I think it's 64. The Rumford Act, also known as the California Fair Housing Act of 1963, was a sweeping bill that called for an end to racial discrimination in all public and private housing in the state and effectively made it illegal. The bill faced huge opposition, and ultimately a coalition of real estate associations and property owners got Proposition 14 on the ballot the next year, and it passed, repealing the Fair Housing Act. It was then restored in 1966 when the Supreme Court ruled Prop 14 illegal, but the drawn-out legal battles ultimately ended with the passage of the 1968 National Housing Act by the U.S. Congress, which made racial discrimination illegal nationwide. Racial covenants may have finally been resolved through the courts, but they weren't the only housing policy stacking the deck against minorities. It's not as neat and tidy as people think, because what they usually look at are the home uh, ownership loan corporations maps from the 1930s, which have these very nice, very clear you know, this place is good, this place is okay, this place isn't as okay, this place is bad, right, from from green to red. The Homeowners Loan Corporation was created in 1933 and introduced the idea of the long-term mortgage that we know today. In order to help mortgage lenders determine where to make loans, they systemized ways of appraising properties across the nation, mostly by creating maps that color-coded neighborhoods in cities according to four grades. Green, blue, yellow, and red. Green areas are, quote, hot spots. They are homogenous, in demand as residential locations in good time or bad, hence on the upgrade. Blue areas, as a rule, are completely developed. They are like a 1935 automobile. Still good, but not what people are buying today who can afford a new one. Yellow areas are characterized by age, obsolescence, and change of style. Red areas represent those neighborhoods in which the things that are now taking place in the yellow neighborhoods have already happened. They are characterized by detrimental influences in a pronounced degree. 
undesirable population or infiltration of it. Low percentage of homeownership, very poor maintenance, and often vandalism prevail. Some mortgage lenders will refuse to make loans in these neighborhoods. Of course, these grades had the effect of institutionalized exclusion. What happens, of course, is that that audit, but fairly quickly, becomes a justification for what then becomes, in the later 30s, and really after the war, becomes redlining, where banks will not give money to specific parts of the city because they view them as either too old, too underserved, too racially mixed, or dangerous. And that then goes for a long time, into the 70s, 80s, even some cases, some people believe the 90s. I, I teach at the University of Southern California. Many of my students are quite wealthy, come from quite wealthy families. I say, you know, your parents didn't start out. Many of you didn't start out in a $5 million house or a $1 million or an $800,000 house. You started out in a $200,000 house or a $100,000 house. And then they traded up and then they made another and they made another. And, you know, much of the wealth of the middle class or the working class, particularly white working class, is their house. That's the key to intergenerational wealth in this country. And exclusion from that system is also the foundation for ongoing poverty. It's important to understand how these incremental acts shaped our cities across this country, tract by tract, until it became institutionalized by the federal government in the form of redlining maps. This reality of systemic racism and financial oppression flies in the face of some of the falsehoods we're told about inner-city neighborhoods. Even the language we use is often coded. We say urban decay, underprivileged, at risk, impoverished, to describe not only black and brown neighborhoods, but black and brown people. But this ignores the fact there have been individual, neighborhood level, and even city level efforts to keep certain people in their communities and certain people out. It also erases the deep resiliency that oppressed communities have developed in the face of institutional racism, a resourcefulness that laced every story Robbie and Harriet told me. No, there's something about it that's fundamentally American. Mm -hmm. Ours. Everybody's got them. Our racism is ours. Racial covenants and discrimination from the redlining maps were not defeated in a vacuum. Nor was the Rumford Act or Fair Housing Acts passed out of some gesture of goodwill by the government. These gains were the result of tireless work by civil rights activists and community groups coming together to put pressure on legislators. Bonding together across differences and organizing politically as communities is truly the story of American ingenuity in action, and the only way to fight against systems of oppression. Here's Robbie Jones, who describes one such group of resilient Black women who organized themselves and were able to successfully buck the system. An organization I belong to, the Philomathian Charity Mm -hmm. Club, which is an African-American female group of women came together purchased it in a living room, just decided in 1921 uh, when it was unheard of for, you know, especially women, but African-Americans to purchase property in a particular area. They wanted that property. They got together in the living room, decided they wanted it. 
purchased that property and within a year they burned the mortgage it was two years two years or something like that that i mean was just that was unheard of you know they were able to they paid it off is what i'm saying and they still own that property today it is amazing to me how vibrant our people are and we just survive under any conditions you kind of just deal with it and you get around it And though this community has such strong roots, it is slowly whittling away, changing rapidly due to skyrocketing property values and displacement pressure. Robbie said that many of the folks she knew who have moved away can no longer ever come back. In just the past 10 years of census data, from 2000 to 2010, the population of the 90404 zip code of the Pico neighborhood has gone from 36% to 65% white with rapidly declining Black and Latino populations. Yet, Robbie feels that many folks have remained connected across geographies, and that there is a Black Santa Monica diaspora that still comes together in times of need. Those Committee for Racial Justice meetings we heard about earlier are just one example. Community came from people who grew up in Santa Monica who don't live here, heard about it on Facebook, heard about it in the newspaper, and came and band together. And it was just like a sea of love, even though there was some hate. But the Nazis and and supremacists, they didn't show up like they said they were coming 300. No. They didn't, it was like five or six, because the community wasn't having it. So I think one of the great things that happened out of the 60s, and it's continued and grown in places like Los Angeles, is that communities began to demand and to organize to demand that some of this stuff go away. And so we didn't get fair housing because some people in Sacramento decided they wanted it. We didn't get civil rights because some people in Washington decided they wanted it. It was this uprising of community organizations. And I would say the most positive thing that is happening in California, Los Angeles, California, and the U.S. is this commitment of all these people to this idea. And whether it be food justice, whether it be housing equity, whether it be uh, you name it, safety. I mean, there's just a myriad of organizations that are trying to figure out ways through art, through social change, through policy change, through urban planning, to try and figure out how can we make a better place. There is power in organizing and power in simply getting out there, learning what is around you in your place and participating. We're facing a massive affordability crisis, sweeping gentrification and displacement that's leaving thousands of Angelinos homeless or in extremely precarious positions. Place still matters, and more and more places are out of reach. Even today, this plays out between activists, developers, and homeowners on our ballots and in the halls of the legislature. It's still a fight about values. Is housing a human right for everyone? Or is it a commodity with astounding profit margins reserved only for those with the means to afford it? This is episode one of the six-episode series on housing in Los Angeles. Next time, we travel to downtown 
to discover the rise and fall of the frothing reds of an anarchist and socialist movement that was trying to imagine a different future for this city in the early 20th century. Many thanks to all the people who made this episode possible. David Sloan, Robbie Jones, Harriet McCauley, and Amanda Wire. Thank you, as always, to Mike Yank for creating the original music. I'm Sue Bell Yank. See you next time.